following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bibles uh, to Luke um, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be at today. Give me a second to get there. Luke is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 3. One of my favorite uh, commentators uh, commentators, just somebody explains scripture. Um, majority of my favorite commentators are dead, <laughs> just because um, old guys still speak sometimes uh, that are still dead. And uh, his name is uh, uh, J.C. Ryle. And if you want to go ahead and throw that slide up there, Dan, J.C. Ryle gives a little bit of a commentary on Luke chapter three, and it's fitting for where we start in our study today in Luke chapter three, verse one through six. And he says. Let us learn never to despair. And some of you are gathered here today and we're speaking about peace and we're talking about peace and the peace of Christ and you're thinking to yourself, I don't really have that. I've, I've uh, had a hard season and I find myself in despair. And if we're not in a hard season, we should rejoice and praise the Lord in any season. Um, but we've been in despair, right? We've been there before. We can resonate. We know how that feels. He said at the very time though when things seem hopeless, God may be just preparing a mighty deliverance for us. And Ryle continues, and he says, At the very season when Satan's kingdom seems to be triumphing, the little stone that was cut without hands may be on the point of crushing it to pieces. And we as believers in Jesus Christ know that Christ came, that he died, and that he rose again to defeat evil. That's true. That's a promise that is outlined for us in Scripture. And when we have that promise and we cling to that promise, we know that the powers of sin can be defeated. Whatever it is in your life that is going on right now that you just don't seem to have a handle on or can't be defeated, let me tell you something. God's word says that, yes, it can. Keep going. The darkest hour of the night is often that which just precedes the day. Most people give up the race too soon. You're almost home. You're almost at the finish line, right? So we have to be aware that our hands shouldn't slack from any of the work that God has placed or entrusted to our care because the wickedness of the times or the number and the power of our adversaries, God, uh, through the power of Jesus Christ, can overcome all of those things. Believe that? I think we say we believe that, but when the chips fall, right, here's, here's where we really have to uh, put our faith into practice. And we talked a little bit about Luke last week, but um, we're going to talk more about Luke this week and in the weeks to come. And if you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1, we know that the people who are present in Luke's day are much like us. They have a, a hard life in regards to political problems and economic problems and religious problems, all those things, nod your head, are present in today's society, correct? Okay, we have, we have political problems, we have economical problems, and we have religious problems. It seems like everybody 
who was in a position of power in Luke's time period wanted to rule the world, right? I don't know why anybody would want to rule the world, but they're constantly jockeying for position. Now, here's what's interesting. If you study Luke in context, and what I mean by that is chapter 2 and chapter 4, you'll see that uh, common people felt powerless when corrupt leaders were in control. And so here comes this man, his name is John the Baptist, and he declares a message of repentance that will cause internal peace regardless of the turmoil that is on a rampant, uh, essentially, ascent in the society. And so what John the Baptist declares is that Jesus is going to come and that he uh, is going to heal and he's going to save through repentance and faith And then he's also going to, like a good leader, confront bad leadership. And so here, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus Christ. And he declares that we have, uh, we as believers have nothing to fear or be afraid of because the peace of God that dwells in our hearts. And he calls us to live in accordance to these instructions. And here in Luke chapter 3, the verse 6 verses, what I see here is... uh, Two ways that God is at work making peace in his people. Two ways that God is at work making peace in his people. Let's read the first two verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Mandel, you did a fantastic job reading those names, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonontis, and Lysias, tetrarch of Albanine, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and it came in the wilderness. First way that we see that God is at work making peace among his people is in the wilderness. Luke sets the stage here for John the Baptist's ministry, and he puts it in historical context. And he introduces four men here who will play a significant role in the life of Jesus in regards to his crucifixion. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here. Pontius Pilate's one, Herod's another one, Annas and Caiaphas, and then three officials, Tiberius and Philip and Licinius, who serve at the time of John the Baptist's ministry. Now, this is going to be kind of a crash course in what's transpiring in Luke chapter three, and you're gonna feel like you're um, taking a seminary class, and that's okay, you need seminary classes sometimes. The date is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which sets us at about 26 AD, or as late as 29 AD, and it makes John the Baptist about 30 to 33 years old. Now, let's look at these seven men, and the reason we're going to look at them is because it helps us see that the things that these individuals are experiencing in society are very similar to the things that we experience in our society. They're not so different, okay? First of the seven, Tiberius Caesar, and we're going to go through these quickly. Tiberius is the Roman emperor, and he rules from 14 to 37 A.D., Tiberius is a capable military and community leader, and he tries to retain Rome's out-of-control budget. So they had a national deficit, and we have a national deficit. 
And Siberius doesn't do a good job with it, and neither does any other political leader that we've had in office, right? So he fails, and we realize that there's problems in politics. Tiberius is extremely unpopular, too. There was a guy, his name was Pliny the Elder, and he called him the gloomiest of men. Can you imagine that at your obituary? Uh, Tiberius was the gloomiest of men. <laughs> he was known for treason, sexual perversion, and he shrunk back his, from his responsibilities by going into seclusion. What a great political leader, right? He might fit in our society. Number two, Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> Pilate served under Tiberius Caesar from 26 to 36 AD. He was insensitive, greedy, and a brutal military commander. He was radically opposed to Jews. So, we see first two men. One, political problems. Two, we see opposition to those people who are of faith. Three, Herod. Herod here is better known as Herod Antipas. He is one of Herod the Great's sons who rules the region of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to 39 AD. When Herod the Great died, Rome was divided into territories, three territories, and those three sons were appointed as rulers over those areas. Now, the word tetrarch is interesting because it means a ruler over a fourth part, so it's used loosely here. This Herod is the same Herod that imprisoned John and later has him executed, and he also has his hand in Jesus' unjust trial. So we learn here that political people are also after people of faith. They're radically opposed to people of faith. Fourth political person, Philip. Herod's brother Philip reigned over those two places that are mentioned there, Eteria and Trachotitis, from 4 BC to 34 AD, that's located east of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, two prominent places of Jesus' ministry. Philip comes into the picture again when we see John the Baptist is criticized by Antipas for marrying Herodias, which is Philip's wife. So there's relationship problems in politics. That's nothing new either, right? We know that that's true. Um, sorry, one more political person. Licinius oversaw Albanine, which is northeast of Galilee and northwest of Damascus. And for quite some time, this is fascinating. If you study this passage of scripture, you'll see that we knew nothing about him until recently. Until recently, we just learned that there was an inscription found in the capital of Albanine that mentioned Licinius, and that gives Luke's gospel validity. It validated scripture. This is just recently that people are starting to believe God's word because it's constantly being validated generation from generation to generation to generation. So all the promises of God are true, and they're continually becoming true to even the hardest of sinners. Now, that's all the political problems, okay? Hang with me just a second. I know there's a lot of names here, but this is important for you to understand because you're resonating with these people. You're understanding you're part of uh, these people. You're underneath some of this political oppression as well. Now, there's also problems that are happening in the church, namely to high priests. You have Annas and Caiaphas, and we we pause here for a second because we wonder, why does Luke mention two high priests? There's only supposed to be one. 
Now, there's not two high priests. There's really one official high priest. Ananias was the previous high priest, and he ruled from 6 to 15 AD, and he was overthrown, but he still had a considerable influence over uh, the people. And so when Caiaphas came in, people still called Annas uh, uh, the high priest. It was very similar to a president that we used to have and a president that we have now, and people look at and go, Mr. President, and you're like, he's not the president anymore, but he's still called the president, right? It's the same thing that's happening. Uh, Mr. High Priest, I'm not really the high priest anymore, but thank you for your vote of confidence. Now, uh, Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, and he's the high priest appointed in 18 AD. Now, that's important. Underline high priest in your Bible. Because the high priest is the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. His most important duty of being high priest was to conduct a service on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the tenth day of the seventh month of the year. And the high priest is the only person who's allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God, making sacrifices for himself and the people and their sins committed in that year. If you want to learn more about it, it's Exodus chapter 30. In understanding the role of the high priest, we better understand the significance of Christ and his offering of himself for our sins once and for all. One time, Christ dies one time. And here we realize that he is our great high priest, our intercession. We can go to God because of his sacrifice for us. We're set apart because of the sacrifice of our great high priest, Jesus. We enter into God's presence because of our great high priest, Jesus, who made eternal redemption for those who would believe. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ. You don't have to go to a priest to go to God. You have to go to Christ to get to God. So you pray to the living God, the heavenly Father, on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Son, who was a sacrifice for sin. That's good news. If you don't know uh, Jesus Christ, you don't know God, and you can confess of your sin, repent of that sin, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Well, why is this so important? Okay, Uh, in Luke chapter 1, Verse 53, Mary says, Jesus, the Messiah, has put down all these princes, these political figures from their thrones, and he exalted the lowly like John the Baptist. This is also good news. Why? Notice, the emperor Tiberius, most powerful man in the world. Six other important political and religious figures also named here powerful people. But the word of God doesn't come to these men. Caiaphas, Annas, the word of God doesn't come to these men. The person who's allowed the most privileged opportunity to enter into the presence of God in the holiest of holies is not receiving the word of God. Instead, the word of God comes to an unlikely man, John, in an unlikely place, the wilderness. It doesn't come to Rome. It doesn't come to Jerusalem. It doesn't come to the temple, but it comes to the wilderness. Why? Because God is at work in the wilderness. And we know God's at work in the wilderness because God chooses unlikely people to work in the wilderness. 
You are an unlikely person. I am an unlikely person to receive the peace of God. How odd is it that God chose Jews in the Old Testament? How odd is it that God chose David, right? He has all these brothers and sisters, or brothers actually, uh, uh, sisters debated, is, and they're better looking than he is. And God still chooses David. How unlikely that God chose Mary. How unlikely that God chose John. And how unlikely that God chose you. And this season of Christmas, I'm reminded that the peace of God comes to an unlikely person like myself, and it can come to a person like you through faith in Christ. John chapter 15, verse 16 says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Better uh, way to say that, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, not to pit Luke against Peter, but I'm doing it. You are a chosen race. How do we have the peace of God? Because I'm an unlikely person that John is proclaiming here in this place, paving the way for Christ, your chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. The peace of God rules in your heart because you are a possession of his. Called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God chooses unlikely people like John. He chooses unlikely people like us. And notice, he chooses unlikely places. The wilderness seems like such an unlikely place for the verbal word of God to come. Why not Jerusalem? Why not the temple? The wilderness is unpopulated. John's message declared there would only be heard if people came to travel to hear him. I'm reminded of uh, the old movie, The Field of Dreams, right? If you build it will come. If you proclaim it, they will come. And here's what happens throughout Israel's entire history. Wildernesses have been a place where God has shaped his people. Wildernesses have been where nations were forged. Wildernesses were where prophets did their work. Wildernesses is where Jesus the Messiah was tested. And wildernesses like the one that you're in right now is where God does his greatest work. That desolate place where you think all hope seems lost is where God wants to do his greatest work. If he can do it for John and the Jews and Mary and all these people, he could do it for us. We are most open to hearing God's word when life seems most barren. And the people who are present in your life, and you hold the peace of God within you, you have it within you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you confessed of your sins, repented of those sins, believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and are saved from condemnation, you carry the peace of God, and you can bring that peace of God to people who are in desolate places in this season of life. That's good news, that God is at work in the wilderness. So you're looking at a place, and you're thinking to yourself, there's nothing good that can happen here, and God's looking at it, and he's saying, this is where I'm gonna do my greatest work, but you gotta let me do it. Now, this is how we do it. How do, how do we do that? Well, look at verse three. And he, John the Baptist, <clears throat> goes throughout all of the region around the Jordan. And he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Unapologetically, he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not John's words. Look at he's, he's taking from the words of Isaiah the prophet. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So if God is at work in the wilderness, God is at work in our opportunities and our obligations in making his path straight like John did. This is where we see peace manifested as we're almost home. John the Baptist is often ignored, and I don't understand why. I don't get it. He is one of the most overlooked uh, characters, real people in the Bible. Why? He's the first Christian. He's the first Christian witness. He's the first Christian preacher. He's the first Christian prophet. He's the first Christian martyr, and he's the first Christian to ever baptize converts. That's a pretty good resume. And you overlook him. And here he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, an outward picture or symbol of an inward change of the heart. Now the Jews, they're they're really familiar with baptism because what they would do is if there was a Gentile that wanted to be baptized, they would bring them in or wanted to become a Jew, they would bring them in and they would baptize them to wash away their sins. And if you ever get baptized for the washing away of sins, somebody's lying to you. That's not what's happening and transpiring. It's an it's a outward picture of an internal transformation that has taken place because of the repentance of sins. And so John's push in baptism wasn't for conversion. It was for a baptism of repentance. In other words, this baptism doesn't save anyone. It merely points to an internal transformation of the heart, which fulfills an angelic prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 77. And that passage says, give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And since John is also visibly taking on the role of the prophet Elijah, it's possible that he picks the region of the Jordan, which is exactly where Elijah spent his last days. Just as Israel needed repentance and this prophet to tell them that, we need John to tell us to prepare our hearts to receive Christ and help our families and friends prepare their hearts for we see the day approaching. We cry out in our wilderness to make his path straight. We cry out with this command from God, make his path straight. This is a command to believers to make the path of God straight for yourself and also for others. This is what John is declaring here. When a king planned to travel, work crews repaired the roads in advance. It was like the president coming to town. As a matter of fact, I remember when Obama was in office, uh, they shut down the entire South Bend Highway to prepare uh, for his coming in. You couldn't get in. They were making sure there was no potholes. They were making sure nothing was a problem so that the path was clear for him. John cries out, you can underline cries out, loud voice for the people to repent. This is a sense of urgency. Prepare your hearts for the Lord. Repent of your sin. In the Old Testament, people felt abandoned by God. And John's saying, you're not abandoned. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I feel abandoned by God. God hasn't abandoned you. He is right there in front of you. God hasn't hasn't removed himself from us. John has prepared this way, and in the New Testament, he is asking us to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. If you're not a believer, it's the call to trust Christ. If you are a believer, it's to make the path straight. What does he mean by that? 
Well, in verse 5, John cries out to Israel and to us to remove any obstacle that's standing in the way of the Lord, taking his rightful throne. Look at this verse. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. Those are all analogies. Low things, valleys, are dark things of the heart that need to be brought to the light. What is dark in your heart that you think that nobody else knows that takes place in your mind that needs to be brought out into the light? That's what he's saying here. And high things are mountains and hills, and that is where the heart must be brought low, like pride. Those are, those are the high things that need to be brought low. The crooked and the rough things need to be made straight or level. That's anything perverse or twisted or deceitful. Anything that obstructs God's entrance into helping you mature in your relationship with Christ. What is it that is a barrier between God doing a great work in your heart? That's what John's saying. Either bring that darkness to the light or bring that attitude that makes you pompous down low, make whatever is causing you to be crooked to become straight. And so here's the question that we ask. Do we make it easier or harder for Christ to come to others and to ourselves? A reminder of how oftentimes we go shopping for things and for stuff and we, we look oftentimes more for ourselves than for others. That would be nice to have. And I feel like God constantly looks at me and be like, you would be nice for me to have. This would be something that would be good, my relationship with you. This is what Christ calls for, he commands us to do. Verse six, John is saying, like we said last week, take inventory on what is in our heart that is not of God and act accordingly. Dark things to light, proud things to be brought low. For when we do that, we who are flesh will see, verse six, the salvation of God. Oftentimes we do not see the salvation of God because we do not let God manifest himself in our everyday lives. Because we're too wrapped up and our fingers are too tight around that which is worldly. And so what John says here is, he says, true repentance requires complete and full admission to my own sinfulness the depths of it, the heights of it, the lengths of it, the breadths of it. Sin has to be recognized and reflected upon in my own life and given over to the Lord through prayer and study of his word so that he can shine his light on those dark places and I can correct accordingly. The great Bratcher, who's one of uh, a great commentators, said, it means that they will see how God will save them or if they refuse to re not repent of that, they will see the Savior that God will send them. And I don't want to be sent to that place. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 4, the smartest human being probably that ever lived said, He that observes the wind shall not sow, and he that regards the clouds shall not reap. So what's he talking about there? Ryle continues from our quote when we first started, and he says, We then work. We serve, we strive, we contemplate, we think, we implement, and we believe that our help comes 
from heaven. That when we give these things over to the Lord, when we bring up the dark things, when we bring down the high things, when we make the the things that are crooked straight, that when we give them over to the Lord, he will do a great work in us. It is in the very hour when a Roman emperor and ignorant priests seem to have everything at their feet. We who are Americans have everything at our feet. We have everything that we could possibly desire. We have every piece of information at our fingertips. The Lamb of God is about to come forth from Nazareth and set up the beginnings of his kingdom that are not of things of this world. And so the call and command is to loosen your grip on the world. Like, do whatever you can to pry your fingers away from it and ask people to do the same. For what he has done once, what will happen? He will do it again. We believe that to be true. The Advent season reminds us that Christ came and that he's coming again soon. I mean, we, we believe this. I thought about this the other day. I thought, God, what if you come today? What if it's now? What a day of rejoicing that will be when in a moment he can turn his church's midnight into the blaze of noonday. We set our minds on these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's it's your word, it's your truth, and we wrestle with it. It's, It's this peace that we know dwells within us when we confess our sin and believe and repent of that sin in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, there are so many people here today who don't have peace right now because we are refusing to make that which is low come up and that which is high come down and that which is crooked made straight. We are not seeing opportunities that are in front of our face, things that are are right there for the taking in regards to evangelistic efforts or edification processes, we're, we're not seeing those things, so open our eyes. We know we're an unlikely people, but you have called us out of darkness into your glorious light and help us to proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of that darkness and into that glorious light for an offering of people to come to know your peace. And help us when we give that call so freely that people would look at us and they would say, I see it in your life. I see you striving to honor the Lord in all that you think, say, and do. I see you uh, striving to, to make sure that Christ is at the center. As we anticipate, God, you coming again soon. We look forward and we long for the day that you will come again soon. This season reminds us of that. Help us, God, to focus on this truth to meditate on this truth. And may we implement this truth as we continue to worship you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.